Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. Today, we are offering four conversations from episode 44, our look at screening T2D patients and ways that MASH differs in women versus men and among women based on menopausal status. Plus, from the vault, a conversation from 2023 about different primary care screening strategies for MASH. This conversation covers the other paper that Roberta Forlano came prepared to discuss, a literature review looking at how MASH and MASL might differ in women compared to men. Roberta starts by noting the gap in literature about gender differences in MASH studies and the women appear represented in most clinical trials. Most of the rest of the conversation involves Roberta and Louise Campbell commenting on gender differences and the impact of menopausal status on MASH and MASL in women. When this finishes, I ask Louise and Jorn Schottenberg to describe one thing we discussed that might affect their practices or patterns and ask Roberta what she would like listeners to take away from the conversation. Listen on to hear some diverse answers. Coming out of this session, I understood why Louise had advocated to bring Roberta Forlano and her work on the podcast. You'll hear some fascinating data, a data you can use, about some of our core target populations. It's a lot of information in a fairly short episode, so just sit back, listen, learn, enjoy. When you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Why don't we take the last 15 minutes we've got and to go through um, the uh, literature review of the issues of women, and which also had, to use Louise's phrase, some startling data in it. So let's dive in for a couple of minutes and talk about what you think were the most interesting things that came out of the review. And then there, I'm sure we'll have questions because I'm sure Louise has six loaded up right now, just because I'm guessing. Roberta Forlano. Yes. So the idea of this review, which I've participated to have collaborated, we soon found out that even clinically, there's a big gap in the literature and in the research about differences between men and women in uh, fatty liver. In particular, women are quite underrepresented in the, in the research or, you know, they don't really have many dedicated studies. So we actually wanted to post grounds for future research for, of our own, but we wanted to start with searching for, for what was known in the literature and <laughs> we found out there was not much. So we decided to put everything together into this nice review so that we could highlight on a clinical point of view what we know about um, the differences between men and women pre and post menopausal face, so what we know in the literature. So we, we have many changes in basically in women, of course, um, as we know in the menopausal phase, the, the differences between men and women in terms of prevalence and uh, disease severity changes a lot when women uh, move to the menopause, when into the menopause phase. So basically, we know that before the age of 50, when they are younger than 50, men are usually, nafold mm, fatty liver is more common in men compared to women, but these changes after well, after the age of 50, because we know that the prevalence of fatty liver increases in women, but uh, they also are a higher risk for fibrosis progression, uh, for NASH. And there were also a couple of studies showing that NASH resolution is less common in women who lose weight compared to men. So yes, it seems like they are more resistant or the benefit of weight loss compared to women, at least in terms of NASH. And it's multifactorial. So there are a lot of factors involved, like the age of menarch, menopause, status, as I was saying, body fat distribution, so, but also not only body fat distribution, but also muscle mass distribution with the worst case manifestation of sarcopenia, which is muscle waste, reproductive hormones, and also other conditions, genetic conditions like Turner syndrome of, or polycystic ovary syndrome. So um, all these conditions and factors are associated with different risk for NAFLD. For example, women who have polycystic ovary syndromes, which is very commonly diagnosed nowadays, they tend to 
have higher level of androgens and it's been demonstrated a higher high risk for inflammation in the liver. But also it's the way we manage um, the disease. We diagnose the disease that may have differences between the two groups. If we think of liver function tests, for example, ALT and AST, ALT is, uh, tends to be low in women compared to men because of their uh, body mass composition. So um, we don't really know how FIFOR or Nafoldi fibrosis score perform in women compared to men, if they are as effective as they are in men. Or, or on a similar note, there are basically gender or sex is never taken into account in any of these non-invasive markers, these algorithms. There's only one that has been developed recently, Agile 3, which takes into account sex, but it's the first one. We don't really uh, consider sex into the uh, risk stratification of patients with Nafoldi. Again, another important finding, we know that uh, women tend to die more in a transplantation list, basically, while they wait for uh, liver transplantation compared to men. Again, probably because the, the way we uh, stratify patients for the need for transplant takes into account MELD, basically MELD or other factors that may reflect more muscle mass or different body composition. And women are definitely disadvantaged by these scores and they tend to, less, to, to die more frequently during while waiting for transplantation than men. So one good thing uh, is that women uh, in the postmenopausal age, uh, they tend to uh, suffer less from liver cancer, at least. Uh, so there should be a way they are protected uh, versus men. But yes, it's it's really, really interesting because we gather together uh, studies showing that level of estrogens is very, very important that influencing how we produce lipids, fat in the liver, how we burn calories within the muscle mass, how we keep muscle mass, so and how metabolite creates increases or decreases in the premenopausal, postmenopausal rate, um, age. So it's very complex issue and takes into account many factors, but we definitely need to study more. We need targeted studies, I think. Jörn Schattenberg. You mentioned some very interesting also pathophysiological aspects of the disease and argue for differences there. You know, just listening to you, I wonder whether this is also going to read out in therapies and we might need some adaptations uh, if we're t discussing certain pathways. You know, talking about personalized therapy, that could matter. So very interesting. Thank you for sharing. I think we really need to, at, at some point in the era of precision medicine, we will really need a sex-targeted therapeutical approach with all the medications coming up. And that's not as futuristic as some of the targeted approaches we're talking about, right? Trying to identify as men or women. <laughs> True. It might be closer than we think. It, it does kind of have a basic blocking, what, what, what we call in the States a basic blocking and tackling feel to it. Something that you could sort out pretty easily if you knew that you wanted to look for it. Okay, so Louise, you had described a couple of things in yours being startling. What, what startled you when you saw it? Louise Campbell. I think Roberta and the team did a fantastic job of reviewing what's available and coming up with some hypothesis, looking at everything from sarcopenia all the way through and how the differences are. But the stark reality is that a female postmenopause at the age of 60 has a cardiovascular risk of 18% versus a man of 8 or 9%. If you went through menopause early and below the age of 40, they have a 90% increased risk of severe fibrosis compared to somebody who went through the menopause after 40. We do not have very many comorbid clinics. I don't know anybody, and we weren't engaged with our menopausal clinics in hepatology at that time. I don't know whether you've reached out since some of this data and review, but do women experience menopause worse 
or better because they've got fatty liver disease coming into menopause. A lot of the symptoms of fatty liver are actually not dissimilar, tiredness, lethargy, poor concentration to those that we see as the most common symptoms. But also, as Jorn's alluded to, does resmeterone, for example, work as well in men as it does in women? The weight loss actually doesn't surprise me. It's where you lose the weight. If you lose it off your hips, as a woman, you're going to lose it off your hips or your breasts first statistically when you start to lose weight. That is not where I want to see that coming off in a fibre scan. I want to see it coming off the CAP score. And I think the one thing that was uh, that was interesting in the study, elastography is not gender biased. The liver is the liver. The CAP is the CAP. It just tells you what the liver is. It doesn't say, is it male liver? Is it female liver? Is it a child's liver? Is it an older liver? It's actually non-discriminatory, which is where I certainly come from. Let the liver tell me and then we'll have that conversation. This was a beautiful review by the team in the context of of being able to place education into different ages of women and men because there was some very good information on male weight. We just say mid-spread, but actually we should be taking more notice of that spread, where it is, why it's occurring and targeting better education. So there were masses of stuff in this piece that's a review and it's probably certainly the best review I've read that alludes to the massive differences. And I'm a different person now than I was. If you put me in a study pre-menopause to peri to post. So to be able to longitudinally follow people, you have to account for those differences as well. And I don't think we do a good enough job in any hepatology study of looking at the gender effect. And the transplantation one is obviously something that Donna Cryer and GLI have taken up with the federal government in the US and have got their total review of transplantation and how it's allocated out. So that's another interesting aspect on that. Well, let's say broadly, Louise, uh, and thinking about my comment earlier, I think, you know, we, we risk stratify based on the liver phenotypes. We take a biopsy, we enroll in a clinical trial and see how the biopsy reads out. So we focus on the liver phenotype and uh, the drugs I've seen, there is no really gender difference if you compare that, but there might be gender specific aspects of treatment response. And we haven't seen that data in all extent, but that is something to be looking out for. And I'd asked Reversa before you came on, was there a difference? Because she does a lot of work with Ben Mullish on gut microbiome in the team, whether or not women have different gut microbiomes or whether or not there's a, a different slant and again, how did that, if you were able to comment on that? Yes, generally speaking, there are differences between men and women in terms of microbiome, but we don't have the data enough, at least not at the time we were writing the review, which was uh, two, three months ago. But uh, there's a very nice new name that has been coined, estrobolome, which is uh, the phenomenon on how a microbiome can influence reproductive hormones, in particular estrogen, and the other way around, how estrogen or reproductive hormones can change microbiome. So there's another big gap. We know from other fields that uh, this interaction can happen, but we don't know what's going on in FLD from this point of view. So we are actually analyzing data from my cohort. Uh, we did microbiome analysis in this population. So we are looking into pre- and post-menopausal and post-menopausal versus men the same age. So I will keep you posted. Excellent. So we're at about the bottom of an hour. So it would be a good time, I think, to start to wrap up. Each of you practices from a different perspective. What I'm wondering is what you've heard heard or spoken about or we've spoken about in the last hour that either might change how you think about an issue in diagnosing or stratifying patients or that validates something you've been doing all along that might have been considered somewhat controversial or unusual at some point in time. Brave one, go first. And I have no answer on this because I don't treat. So uh. I don't treat, but I scan and I talk to people about their diets 
and their weight. And I see a growing number of postmenopausal women commenting about where their weight is, how it is. And certainly the nuances from the female paper will help me. And there was some beautiful detail in there as to why weight goes on in certain areas and how that can be influenced. And I think that's reassuring for an education perspective. From the first paper, it was greatly reassuring that all um, screening methods were cost effective. And I think we need to get the best ones for the right area and the right populations because I think not one size fits all. So therefore, making what works in certain populations is the best screening strategy for that population. But they were both excellent pieces. Love them both. Yeah, thank you for coming on, Roberta. This is really our Monday. It's Tuesday, actually, today, but Tuesday evening uh, live arounds here. So it's been great to discuss your paper and it's a great piece of work. You know, in my practice, um, I'm looking forward to have these patients referred uh, as you did with systematic screening from diabetologists. Um, Reality today is, as you detailed also, uh, you know, they're being sent for elevated LFTs with no clue of fibrosis or whatever, they, they didn't even have a hep C test uh, up front. So I'd like to risk stratify better. And your study shows how that can be done. There is some difference between the referral systems we're working in. So some of that is, is, is related to this, but it's a strong piece showing, you know, it, it has been shown in, in some other systems too. I, so I think we're on a, on a good path really implementing that moving forward. And the reality of um, postmenopausal women, I, I think there's uh, the complexity of their um, complaints. I do see and I say that over and over again, a lot of um, bodily pain in that population too that I don't experience to the same extent in, 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 in men. So I think there's a lot of aspects different that we need to account for in their care. Restless leg syndrome, uh, some things that not even picked up uh, and are just irritating to the treater, but it's very real for the patient. So I think, the uh, again, multidisciplinary care here is very important. Fantastic. Roberta, any uh, feedback? For, not now. Your research, I'm not sure would surprise you the same way, but things you hear when you share with other people that say to you, these are important points for people to pick up on better than maybe they have in the past, anything like that? I mean, the, yes, the main take-home message that everyone takes from this work is that we need to screen. I mean, regardless of what screening strategies we like or we can do in our area, but we really do need to screen patients with type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome. And I, I would add, I mean, one of the take-home message from my studies that patients loved being screened. They loved doing the tests for the liver. They loved discussing about their liver health. They loved having feedbacks. So I think that's that's part of what improves their liver condition as well because they get very motivated. So screening has, has also this, this big advantage. Really, really, patients really love it. It was funny because they said, why? do the, They were so surprised I was offering screening for liver disease. They never heard of it, but they were very happy. It would be really good clinically to offer this to up to these patients. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded the conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with more individual interviews. We're still lining these up, but likely topics might include the impact of the Hamas invasion on the Israeli medical system and or how U.S. payers are looking at the coming MASH prescribing patterns or maybe something else. We'll announce our subjects and topics early next week. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.